Okay, then let's do some kind of introduction. I'm Natasha, and... I'm Rick. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to read chapters 8 through 10 in the 1998 classic by E.O. Wilson, Consilience. Enjoy! I think every episode is going to have to start out with you going. (laughs) 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 Because I was messing around with the audio on the other one. And Uh like, I had to restart it like a million times. So that everything I, what I heard every time was. (laughs) (laughs) We can have me as a fucking laugh track going on in the background. (laughs) Western Mark effect. (laughs) And your laugh is like so gruff and masculine. It's just. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> better better um, watch out. I, I, I'm a turf. Yeah, well, I'm a fucking <laughs> retard. So we're, we work well together. Mm-hmm. Dude, okay. Where are we going to even talk about now? Because we talked about the most important part of chapter eight, which was the Westermark effect. Yeah. Um, and- well. Do we want to re- do we want to retread uh, some of them? Maybe let's a- go light. Let's go a light retread because yeah. So talk. So rename the Westermark effect. Okay. So ha- your favorite thing, you incestuous fuck. Uh, well, um, I, I have a problem with this because, like, you know, <laughs> why is it they should always raise people apart so that this could happen? I'm kidding, <laughs> but um, so so the Westermark effect. Uh, is <laughs> it, it essentially says that uh, opposite sexed children uh, raised uh, in proximity will uh, most often or, or almost, uh, almost uh, completely form kin-like bonds so that they will not experience uh, sexual attraction to one another. I wonder uh, if that counts for like how close they are in um, in genetic similarity because he does talk about that I think in chapter nine about how families with high reproductive conformity will have different bonds. Mm-hmm. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, like uh, but, but step siblings, for example. Yes, but, but it, it, so it seems as though uh, it's this. This is where he's saying essentially this is a genetic prescription that this will happen. That if underneath those thirty months or somewhere within those thirty months, something is triggered which walls off uh, someone raised in that cohort as uh, a potential sexual partner. Uh, so it's not a cultural thing at the genetic level when uh, when people are that closely genetically related now i want to know what those genes are because um again like our our buddy eo likes to talk like likes to talk shit but i'm like where are the (laughs) genes baby (laughs) buy me some dinner right well and you know it 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 may be that this is the kind of thing uh for which at the time there wasn't a genetic uh marker or a series of genetic markers for it it might be that it's something that is so universal that uh it screams this is genetic rather than that it uh, was discovered as genetic the audacity so so, uh, so the, the audacity of someone to look at something as a so universal uh 
as an incest taboo and to draw a conclusion that it might have a genetic, uh, you know, foundation. <laughs> well, the, well, and this is a perfect segue into uh, gay shit. This is, I feel like we need like a button that says like gay shit. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I'm sure <laughs> that if there isn't one out there already, we could make one. Oh, the, oh, oh it's coming. Oh, after gay know, shit. Um, but no, this is a perfect point because like uh, people have often presumed that there are genes that um, dictate gayness, mm -hmm. but we have not found them. And the only thing we have found is that there are parts of the brain that are masculine, masculinized or feminized, um, but no genetic prescription. Mm -hmm. So, and what you were talking about earlier was about how, whether or not the Westermark effect works with gay kids. <laughs> well, well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, the question is, because the statement is that when it's opposite sex to children, it is not what happens with same-sex children? And, and again, it could be just that there are so few uh, and it's not necessarily that readily observable that there can be no conclusions drawn, uh, but it could also be that maybe there are uh, exceptions to the incest taboo when it comes to those kinds of relationships. I can imagine that being so um, because, you know, not, not only is there a significant percentage of the population that's gay, I mean, I'd say it's significant. I mean, in, in a lot of mammalian species, it hovers just under 10%. So that's not insignificant. Um, and, 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 you know, in these non-human primates, like bonobos, for example, they just be, they're just fucking bisexual, like all of them. Bonobos so, know how to party. I just want to say that on the record. So that as anyone's looking at us talking, uh, you know, long into the future, they should know that bonobos, um, they're the way to go. They get down. They, they, they get down. They, 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 get they down. party with things you haven't even imagined yet. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's you the mascot. Pervert, you're nothing compared to a bonobo. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, we, I mean, I think you're, there could be some genetic kind of barrier that happens. Like, for example... Um, I'm just kind of spitballing, but imagine like the, the Y chromosome, right? Uh, it could be two Y chromosomes lead to some kind, there's some kind of genetic, you know, permission that, that is allowed, right? Or, or no Y chromosomes. Mm -hmm. There's like, well, you know, I don't know if that was a gate or a robot. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure how to interpret that one. Uh, maybe that'll come. <laughs> you get right. You smell what I was stepping in. Do that in the bloopers or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, the bloopers. <laughs> yeah. Um, which which brings us back to uh, we were discussing a little bit uh, what was going on with uh, whether or not uh, it was well why it was difficult to study uh, female homosexuality in uh, non-human mammals. Oh, right. Right. Exactly why. Um, and I think this would be uh, difficult to study, especially now in humans, because women are just so creative with sexuality now. But ultimately, and now I'm gonna have to repeat what I said earlier, and I'm never going to be as delicate <laughs> as I was when I was saying it off the cuff. But <laughs> females uh, don't scissor 
<laughs> what is the what is the animal equivalent of scissoring? Um, tripping. You know, it's actually I'm, called I'm, tripping. I'm not sure, but I, I have to tell you that even just doing it with my hands, it feels good. So I can see why it's a common. Practice. No, it doesn't. No, no, no? it doesn't. No. I must have some hypersensitivity right there. You're between. just a fucking pervert. I mean, that's really I, I, actually th th this is true. It's uh, I I'm clinically a, a pervert. I think. <laughs> No, it's called tribbing, though. Um, and, yes, and yes, I know. I, 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 you're like, I'm aware. I, I'm going to be very, <laughs> I'm going to say something very, um, well, to the to people who uh, are fans of maybe it's the original Star Trek, there were uh, little tiny animals that were known as tribbles, and that's what I sometimes uh, call practitioners of tribbing, the tribbles. Tribbles? You're <laughs> a fucking nerd and a perverted nerd. You're going to cut this out, so. <laughs> Maybe. But I had to say Maybe. it. I had I had to say it. Look. It's hard to know what, what's going to get cut out. I'm, I haven't cut anything from the first one, so <laughs> this is going to go somewhere, I'm sure, in the archives. If you want to have banal conversations, there are lots of people to have them. <laughs> no, not us. <laughs> No, but okay, I will, I will try to express what I was saying earlier about female sexual behavior, that uh, females are diverse, they will mount and lordose, uh, depending upon the context, whereas male sexual behavior is almost primarily mounting behavior. Um, you know, unless you're a bottom, I guess, but they don't. Uh, hey. <laughs> but animals, I don't know. I mean, from from what I can remember, there was no like distinct tops and bottoms. It was like, it was like they will allow it or they won't allow it. Penetration, that is. So. Are we talking men or women here? We're talking males. Okay, so male some animals. male animals would allow penetration. Yeah. Would lord dose. Will lordose mm -hmm. okay. when mounted. Yep. Yep. And females will mount, which doesn't make sense to me. Um, it's like this Freudian penile envy. Like, why would they be mounting? You know? Why? Well, I, I, I mean, the other reason is social dominance. I know why. It's a social dominance thing as well. But I feel like I'm just fucking like talking a bunch of shit right now. They call me E.O. Wilson. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I still can't um, believe but, but, you know, uh, but you did say uh, uh, that, um, so both the sexual and uh, the, the, the violent uh, uh, impulses are driven by the same areas of the brain and their, yes. their networks are, are, are uh, either closely uh, placed or they're interconnected. I don't remember yeah. which, which. No, they're in the same place. It's just okay. different populations of neurons that okay. control you could, violence. You know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, I don't know what you'd want to call it, like a little bit of resonance from one to the other that pulls some in. And maybe that explains something like um, uh, BDSM uh, behavior. Oh, it probably, it's most certainly exp explains uh, prison uh, sexual behavior among men. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know as much about what happens in female prisons, but I don't imagine that it's much different given that what you said about the, the mounting and the sexual dominance, dominance displays. I don't know either, but I'm obsessed with prison talk. So I'm going to definitely investigate that. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen any. I, you know what? I did not know that about you. So tell me more. <laughs> there's nothing to know except that like lately i don't know when it, it first came to me but like i found these prison tiktoks and i'm like oh my god I what need to know. yeah like people making tiktoks in prison 
Wow. Oh yeah, that's good stuff. It's really, really high quality content. I mean, if you think about it, what else is TikTok for? It's for like the, the things you don't really get to see. TikTok is, is for, not for the mainstream shit. Like it's, shit can become mainstream from TikTok, but it's mm. like all the gritty stuff that is mm. kind of like undercurrent in the world. Like you, you see so many shitty TikToks. You're just like, oh my God, there's people actually like doing this stuff in real life. Like why? Like in a prison cell, you're sitting there doing TikTok dances and you get like a small glimpse into their life and kind of like what daily mm -hmm. life is like for them. It's so now I have to admit that I'm, at least, I'm at least intrigued because I, I was uh, you know, introduced to TikTok like a lot of uh, men uh, by uh, women uh, deliberately trying to uh, destroy the validity of the Western Mark effect, <laughs> uh, dancing to very bad songs in very suggestive ways. Uh, and from there, I decided I am not watching TikTok at all because I'm probably on some kind yeah, of Yeah, we talked list. about this last time. Assange, uh, and I'm just staying off. Yeah, we talked about this last time. I mean, I um, I'm not necessarily an advocate for TikTok, but I'm a curious person, so like I can't look away. Like we were talking about the Matrix, and someone someone was like, "Thank you for telling me that it sucked." And I'm like, "How can you take my word for it and not see it?" Like, I'm not that type of person. I need and they to don't see even it. necessarily know you. I I needed to see it. Actually, I know so, that person who said that, but yeah, you know, no but lots relative. of people would listen to a reviewer and uh, say, well, you know, so-and-so said that this was horrible. Um, why do people read the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, not necessarily from fans, but from critics? Why would you care what critics thought? Especially, well, because I think certain, I think people believe or they want to believe, like they suspend belief when they look to these sources. They're like, I believe that you know what the fuck you're talking about. And mm -hmm. it's like they want to measure and they want to measure their own interest against those critics. But what they don't know about things like Rotten Tomatoes is that these studios will pay critics to give a review and a, and a critic will review something favorably if they expect they're going to be called back again by the studio. So it's a fucking like human centipede review system. Right. <laughs> and oh by God. the way, the human centipede is better than most films rated positively <laughs> by critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Just saying. Boom. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved in chapter nine. Let's move to chapter nine. Yeah, let's yeah, let's move away. Yeah, this is uh <laughs> Okay, thank God. I'm like, am I recording? Yes, I am. Uh, yes, okay. Um, so I like how he talks about uh, sociologists as people who are shackled by tribe loyalty and promoting postmodern relativism. Like he really, he went in. He ripped them, well, uh, new orify. <laughs> yes. For, in so many ways for so long, this was, this was a feast to read. It was. Because it really already, it kind of, I feel like it kind of presaged uh, a lot of what we see now, uh, okay. where all of the postmodern uh, thinking uh, that's you know, driven by self-referential uh, discussions uh, between, uh, between authors about ideas that have no connection to anything in reality and therefore don't mean meet anything like uh, the requirements for the basis of a theory and certainly aren't conciliant at all, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can 
take over an idea space without ever having to actually prove anything. And they can be internally inconsistent and people still find ways to believe them because everything is relative. It doesn't That's matter. my problem. Like, why are we going to have some uh, partial, partial postmodernism, like where things are inconsistent up into a point? Like who gets to draw that arbitrary line? And, and it fucking drives me nuts. But I did in this brief discussion here come to uh, uh, this answer, this question that I posed, this blank space of <laughs> why relativism matters. Yeah, I'm still matters. trying to read it. Did you write it in disappearing ink? I did, I did. Um, <laughs> so why relativism matters. I just thought of something, why it matters. And he talks about it when he gives the example hmm. of how we're trying to bring um, uh, sociology and biology together. And he says like, okay, let's get, let's take the example of a question, like what causes the decay of American, you know, inner city families. Um, and I, I think, and I thought, I first of all thought like, well, a postmodernist would say, what exactly is decay? What is a family? <laughs> you know? and, and the good thing and, about- And which part of that is some kind of hegemony? <laughs> that needs to oh, be of course we have to <laughs> but i think it, i think postmodernism is a good thing and i never hear anyone say why postmodernism might be a good thing but i think it's a good thing when used sparingly uh, but again we come into the question of like kind of like where to draw the line but postmodernism helps us set up our confines so uh like has anyone officially defined like and thoroughly defined what a family is and what, what is that definition? Where does it extend? At what point are we not talking about a family anymore? Are you my family? Um, Postmodern you know, analysis might say yes. Uh, if we say yes, that's postmodern. What is the universal definition of a family? We'd be hard pressed to actually find that. Yes, but I think it's precisely that fluidity that means that it never arrives at a definition. And therefore, uh, the principles of postmodernism don't direct you to a solution or a definition. What they do is they ask you to question your definitions, but they don't necessarily arrive at a definition. And, and the so the problem it's, is you can't it's, just it's ignore it. You can't well, just it's ignore it. Tool, but it's not necessarily, it, it's not a solution tool. It's more like it's, and I, I think I'm agreeing with you. I think what it does is it, so, so I remember reading a while ago that uh, there's, a, you know, Scientologists use something called uh, an e-meter, right? So these people uh, will, these people, these, these, these uh, uh, special people will uh, attach people to an e-meter. An e-meter basically is uh, designed to test the limits of what you know to be true when you speak it. And basically it will reveal whether or not you're full of shit, probably something like, you know, like a lie detector, I suppose, probably much, much less sophisticated than anything going on uh, for things that are already proven to not be adequate to test what they're supposed to be testing. <laughs> the but unsophisticated, still, it Right, right. So this is meta unsophisticated, but it gives you a, some kind of feedback so that you know whether or not you understand something and, and you at least believe it to be true. And so it's almost like postmodernism is the equivalent of an intellectual e-meter in that it's telling you that you may not have defined something well enough. 
So the principles of absolute, the, the principles of relativism that are uh, relativism embedded in it that are trying to tear things apart really uh, force you to concentrate your definitions to arrive at something more concretely true. So it's a tool. It shouldn't be a position. No, exactly. I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. And my only critique to that, it's not even a critique. It's just like, mm, well, you said it was an e-meter. <laughs> it's like, it's well, I'm trying to give it like an analogy to give it something, something workable. But your analogy is it works because the e-meter doesn't actually fucking work. So the right. problem is with postmodernism, if we were to get into this fucking semantic debate about what is a family, what is the arbiter, arbit, arbiter of <laughs> truth? Like, where do we, who defines actually what is a fucking family? And, and this is where he, I think, and everyone else um, who is afraid of this, <laughs> who's afraid of postmodernism, yeah. everyone, um, where, we, where we fall into it, because we're like, um, okay, if science is just another way of knowing, then who fucking decides what's what? You know, it, it's a it's a scary and slippery slope uh, that I I just fucking love to ski on. Well, um, you know, I did see your uh, partial TikTok, and there was something about skiing going on in there. So I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> fucking TikToks, man. Leave leave TikTok out of it. Let's I don't know if I want to watch that. I don't know if I want to see the actual TikTok or if I'm satisfied with seeing just the blip. Um, <laughs> but, but but you know it, it's <laughs> it. There's nothing about postmodernity that's going to tell you what a family is. But I think. Maybe some of the point uh, that you might get out of uh, what's happening in chapter nine is that it can help you to form a theory that is more sound. And so he talks about the basic requirements for a theory and it's like, uh, so it's parsimony, generality, consilience, he throws in there nicely, and then also predictiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you're also talking about how these things, and, and so you've got this, a, a way of drawing a theory, but then you've also got um, the genetics underneath, uh, underneath your relatedness to at least the people closest to you. And you can start to formulate an idea based on those, uh, on those prescriptions. Right. Postmodernism uh, would tell you, though, a, a couple of things. It might tell you some generalities, but it might point you in the direction of generalities that are so general that they really don't do anything predictive. Uh, none of these things are actually ever consilient, as far as I can tell. Um, but they are frequently very parsimonious in that they'll take some very simple yes. principle and say, yes. So, so the thing that postmodernity, the things that postmodernity seems to work well with is parsimony and generality. Exactly. But it predicts nothing. Nothing. Uh, and it is, it, it's not consilient. And to the degree to no. which it fails those tests, none of these things arrive at theory. And I think we, we've talked about this quite a bit in book club and, uh, and, and other forums. It's, it, we use the word theory too loosely. Mm -hmm. uh, it's appended to things which are not actually theoretic. It, it should be their hypotheses. Maybe you can just say, hey, this is a paradigm. I'm not sure what you would want to call it, but it is something sub-theoretic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the name of the episode. Dumb and Dubber. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. Sub-theoretic. Sub, sub -theoretic. <laughs> 
stop theorizing. <laughs> I do like that he talks about, um, like one of the things that I liked um, was when he talks about uh, economics and we touched on this briefly when we were not fucking recording. <laughs> but um, he talks about models and I think modeling gets a really fucking bad rap these days. Um, and we talked about this because I think the problem is the inputs are so great. There are so many potential inputs. So you have to really focus on which inputs are going to have the biggest effect. Like, for example, um, who would have thought that a pandemic was going to kind of lead to what has led? Like, for example, I was thinking about, well, is there going to be a baby boom or a baby bust? <laughs> and it, it looks like there's going to be a baby boom because of the pandemic. But in the modeling, it, what matters is what question you ask and then what inputs you look to. Um, and I feel like <laughs> the problem is sometimes we're not actually putting the right inputs in. We're putting in, uh, it, this is the problem with like the, um, what do they call it when there's uh, the minor, the loud minority? What is it? Like the silent majority and the vocal minority. Vocal minority, yes. This is a problem with postmodernism trying to include any piece of it in your theorizing, you're going to listen, you have to listen to the vocal minority, because they, that's like one of their concessions, like you have to hear me. And so if you, and this is what has happened in Portland, and I've, I've thought about writing about this many, many times, where the vocal minority has had an oversized input into the modeling, and into the ultimate state of the fucking city, so it turns to fucking shit because some dumbass had an idea and they're like, we should listen to all voices. And, <laughs> and then you get trash. Am I going to get in trouble for laughing at this idea of listening to all voices? <laughs> oh, all voices. I mean, well, well I mean, it depends. Well, like, do you believe like all thoughts are, you know, all cultures are equal in different ways? Are you a cultural relativist? Right. And so he actually, you know, he touches on this pretty well. And this was something that, uh, really, uh, really grabbed me. And it's like, we are uh, the, the whole, uh, so, so what was it? So I have a note here. Let me just take a quick look. Um, so the, the, uh, the sociological method that was written in 1894 uh, by by Durkheim, and then uh, these ideas that have been established uh, publicly by anthropologists, uh, just say essentially, um, look, uh, we're not going to question certain things. We're going to include everything and everyone. We're not going to make any judgments about them. And nothing is better than anything else. And that is the position of scientists beginning to study things. Uh, and, and then, of course, it's also uh, the position of all of the output. And it's no wonder that uh, even if you try to be consilient, uh, you are already poisoned by the unwillingness to ask questions such as, you know, you know, what is actually, you know, good about, let's say, female genital mutilation? Um, you know, is, is it really a good idea, uh, you know, to just murder, uh, you know, people who happen to trespass on your property? I don't know. Maybe we should be thinking about whether or not the most, uh, well, sociopathic, is that relative? <laughs> the most pathological, the most abusive uh, behaviors among us are actually not equivalent and don't deserve an equal voice. 
Right. Especially given a modern era where, where our priorities are vastly different. Like we look at the way we have a war, like there's no way we're going to have a, a violent revolution in the United States. Like it's just not like people are too fucking lazy. They're, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but can I get a blue, free TV? The can blue hairs versus the camo boys. Come on. We've already seen this in Portland. It's LARPing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it is time that we, you know, kind of reconsider some of these questions. Um, but the problem is if we reconsider them now, it's kind of like what they were saying about like um, the Roe v. Wade, the, a lot of these things they want to open up about, about the state of our country, not even Roe v. Wade, but really just kind of the state of our democracy. If you open up that can of worms in the wrong circumstance, you're going to get bad things. Well, uh, yeah. And so this is the, uh, this is the argument of so, so so what is it it's the difference between uh someone who's uh between an open and enclosed society so if, if you're open you don't want to be so porous that you let everything in and it drowns you to death but you also don't want to be so closed off that you're ossified and you you die because of a lack of resources and those include ideological resources um so edge of chaos baby uh, yeah, yeah, that's where you, that's actually where you need to be. It's actually where humans thrive psychologically the most too. It's at the threshold of what is known and where you have some expertise, yep. so that you can develop yourself and move forward along. You know, it's let's say it's a Maslow's hierarchy sort of thing. But uh, if you're not at least there, you're not alive. And I think that's the source of depression uh, in society at large now. Yeah, which so no we one talked is about to do anything at all. <laughs> technology does almost everything for you. It does things you couldn't even imagine. And most people can't even do anything meaningful with their own hands. Right. Well, this is a good point with talking about E.O. Wilson, because E.O. Wilson was so vehemently opposed to, let's call it like, I don't want to call it just tribalism in general, but it was really about what tribalism leads to, which is kind of this blind faith. So the way I think he saw tribalism was at the vast edge where you're willing to um, violate social norms for your tribe and, and, and do very bad things. So what we, when we talk about tribalism and kind of the benefits of it, like what we talked about in our, that other podcast, we were talking about kind of like where tribalism is good, but tribalism is also bad. And E.O. Wilson thought that it would lead to the uh, demise of our entire species. Um, but, but we're kind of on two opposite ends. Like, Strangely enough, right now, we have this crazy tribalism that's happening, but we also have this atomized perspective as well, where we're like tribal and atomized. It's like this very weird Kronberg-like monster. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to me what you think the atomization is, I think, I, so I can follow your train of thought. Well, it's what you and I were talking about with the book club, like when we're like, motherfucker, just join, and they're like, I'm alone in the world and I have to stay that way. And uh, I'm afraid of anyone looking into my thoughts. And it's this fear of connectedness because connectedness leads to pain. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, it could lead to, lead to pain, but it also leads to something transcendent. I mean, there's well, you literally- and I know that. You and I, there, yeah, I mean, come on. So there's nothing going on in your head that you, in your head that you don't already know. <laughs> but the second that someone says something to you that you weren't quite expecting, uh, you start going, hmm, let me think about that a little bit. 
And the reflex to challenge or to open yourself up to something is astonishing in its profundity. And it's ignored by people who decide to atomize themselves. So, um, you know, you, you need to open yourself up to possibility. Possibility is where the optimism of the species lies. I agree. I agree. I mean, and um, it, it's a dangerous place, but but from what I've seen, at least in our little thing we've created, um, that's where the magic is. Like it's in, who is it? It's not Heidegger. I don't fucking know who said it. Like I'm a fucking jumble of ideas and thoughts, but um, <laughs> don't quote me from, I don't know who the fuck's. I got the same problem. <laughs> this is why all these people say shit. And then you're like, that sounds familiar. Where did I hear that? Because they don't fucking remember where they heard it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um but it's like oh shit no i can't even remember what the fuck i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's that now that's oh gone. wait so hey well, so i was going i wanted to go back to this idea of um so when, when we're talking about the, uh, the dirk Heimian and stuff that the ideas that he proposed came up in 1894 so yeah. by the time that this book was being written almost nothing has changed People are still talking about uh, Marxism versus uh, free market capitalism and, and the effects of, of, of social systems uh, and dynamics in pretty much the same ways. And so one of the problems with uh, the social sciences seems to be that for all of the postmodern spin, what's really happened is that they are a closed loop. Uh, in which they're simply talking uh, to themselves about themselves using the same reasoning and reference uh, from over a hundred years ago. And uh, at some point, I don't know, I, I, I made a note on it, but he was saying basically you can tell how much progress uh, a, uh, a, a science has made by how uh, quickly uh, it has forgotten its uh, founders. And right. that's not happening at all uh, in the social sciences. So this again shows that even with uh, what we think of as post-modernity, uh, it's not actually leading you anywhere. Uh, right. It's, it's self-referentiality is actually uh, a failure to solve a problem. Right. That's the issue with injecting political ideology into postmodernism uh, or, or vice versa, injecting postmodernism into your political ideology. You go fucking nowhere. Shit just right. fucking deteriorates. <laughs> you know, and another thing he was saying was, so he was, he was talking about um, how, oh, what was it? So, so much of sociology is kind of like, uh, uh, was it hermeneutics, right? So it's, it's basically, it's basically this intertextual interpretation of the texts as they already exist. And so, and so here, it's almost like people simply, um, reading Bible verses and trying to understand the rest of the world by merely referring to the Bible verses and then referring to the interpretations of the Bible verses written by someone else and so on and so forth. And so you've got this uh, disconnect from the physical world that again results in no solutions whatsoever. Well, it's a thing he was saying. I think he has a respect for hermeneutics because we need to understand symbols and interpretations and things like that, but it's not a science. Um, and that's right. kind of where he goes into talking about the theory, what is a theory, you know, um, and, and kind of how we can bridge these divides with actual theories, but there is a place for hermeneutics. I think it's just, oh, yeah. 
not in but my science. Well, it can't be that your ideas are strictly hermeneutics. If they're stri if they're strictly hermeneutics, then you're probably reaching a point at which you're. It, it, it's almost like you're, you know, you're just talking about. Well, maybe you're just talking about a book, like we're talking about a book. And maybe <laughs> I can talk a little bit and come up with some ideas, but if we don't do something more than come up with some more ideas, ultimately it's just another series of ideas and someone else will listen to them and maybe have some other ideas, but where do they go in the real world and how testable are they? When did they become something like theory? Well, they wouldn't unless somebody grabs onto that and says, okay, here, here, there were you know, three or four great points made in this uh, wonderful uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what Thomas I can almost, says. I can almost prove this by syllogism. <laughs> <laughs> We, well, you didn't. You weren't in the book club when we when we did intellectuals in society. But Thomas Sowell calls out. I think like it was a striking moment for me when I heard him call out ac modern academics as having zero accountability because y'all can just spew out diarrhea of the mouth and you're like, oh, it's just an idea. You're right because it goes fucking nowhere. It goes into the ether. Someone writes a book about your book and then it just so on and so forth. And you just have these fucking mounting piles of ideological and academic garbage floating around that right. you have to sift through to find anything of any value. But I mean, I'm not saying, you know, hermeneutics is, is useless. It's just like, I like EO's like idea of like, where can we tie this into biology, like actual, I mean, that's why I, I studied molecular biology and not sociology, because I'm like, there's something tangible right. about, about a gene. Um, it's not the end all be all, but it just becomes infinitely more com complex. And that's why he says these economists don't dare or, or these, um, you know, sociologists, maybe, maybe psychologists are a little bit more daring, but they don't even dare to try and relate any of it to biology because they'll be not only scorned like he was, but just the complexity of it is overwhelming. Where, do, where does one even start? Right. Well, and that's, that is the, the fundamental biophilia that, again, forces them into, you know, some uh, good and effective mathematical models, but very often simply uh, here's, here's uh, an idea space uh, that doesn't really connect that much to the world, uh, except that other people may believe it and by believing it kind of make it look like it could be so, so long as we can say it loudly, not unlike uh, the people whose voices must be heard no matter how wrong uh, they actually are. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's, I don't know, we've been talking about this chapter longer than we've been recording, but I think <laughs> this comes to the conclusion of the chapter, which I actually appreciated the way he concluded, unlike some of his other chapters, where I was just like, you're annoying me with this restating, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, his, his conclusion at the end of this chapter, I think was really good, and it, it felt very like, um, I was very inspired by this chapter, by chapter nine, because it reminded me of the reasons why I got into biology. Um, a professor that I had really inspired me to, to study this stuff. And the conclusion was basically, you need to be fucking brave. You know, you need to be willing to be wrong. You need to be like him. You mm -hmm. need to be willing to be persecuted. Um, you know, and he, he said something like, uh, the chastening sting of the philosopher's tongue uh, you need to be willing to, to take that. And I'm like, mm, sounds good to me. Like, sounds like something I would watch. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny because I had my page open. I was like, I, this is something that we should really look at. So it's interesting. The philosopher's tongue. <laughs> separately. Now I'm not going to talk about the philosopher's tongue and where you can buy that. And if you can see it on my OnlyFans, but. Uh... <laughs> I'm like, I, would, I could, I could write a whole script for this for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the forbidding tasks. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about things that can't be discussed precisely because of these, uh, these, the political uh, influence on uh, the social sciences, it's like, um, and, and so there's a, there's an interesting book um, that, oh, no. that I mentioned to you. Not another fucking it's, book. Um, it's, it's a book, uh, it's, it, the title is Taboo, and I forget, like, there's some, you know, there's some additional uh, nonsense there that doesn't really help you too much, but uh, this this author, whose name I also don't remember, so I'm going to have to look this stuff <laughs> up, and maybe you can slip it in afterward as, like, kind of... Uh, show notes. You know, yeah, show notes. Um, so there's this book, we don't know. We don't, no, we title, don't, we we don't, don't know. know. The author, we don't know. Ago, some excerpts, blah, 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 blah. What it's about, I don't know. And, and so and so, it's about all these things that you're not able to talk about. And there's, as uh, I believe it's a list of about nine different things. And among them is things like, um, you know, racial outcomes in our society and uh, and what things influence them and whether or not a lot of this data is actually even true. Um, and so... If you were to think about those things in conciliant ways uh, and then approach real theories, you might be able to escape uh, the uh, circularity of uh, everything is white supremacy, everything is evidence of racism and so forth. And I hate to even talk on uh, things like uh, the, the, the critical race uh, milieu. But um, unfortunately, this is one of those things that's in your face uh, where if you looked at rings of data that included not, not just things that happened historically, but uh, the, the current atmosphere in different locales and uh, what's going on in family structures and so forth, you could easily find explanations that would defy anything being uh, proponed by the postmodern theorists uh, that are in vogue. Well, it, would take, it, it literally would take almost nothing to do a couple of layers of analysis to say, well, this might be a factor, but its actual, uh, situ- its actual situation in the hierarchy of things affecting uh, condi- current conditions is maybe, maybe it's fifth or maybe it's ninth, uh, but it certainly isn't number one. Uh, and then you could even get something like policy and then maybe you could be addressing it from economic and, and you know, uh, socio, uh, sociological uh, terms and so forth. And from policy perspectives, you can't get there from blame and post-modernity and the most parsimonious uh, theories uh, that I've ever seen uh, propounded by anyone. Yeah, I mean, Sorry, that's why that was a long speech, but uh, it just seems to me like that's the thing that is the most evidence of the failures of postmodernity, the failures of socio- sociolo- sociology. Um, I have um, you know, friends who work as therapists. They buy into this stuff as well. Uh, all of these areas are so polluted with these ideas that uh, to even question them is anathema and they actually produce no results. They predict nothing. They're not explanatory. It's garbage and it's poison to our human relations. Well, this is why I've always been kind of fearful of sociology. And I I don't want to say fearful, but like 
you know, being in a molecular neuroscience lab, we were always just a stone's throw away from, from cognitive and behavioral neuroscience. And my mentor, brilliant, she, we would always look at behavioral stuff and go, you know, <laughs> like, that's, how do you know that the rat is floating because he's depressed? Maybe he's just fucking smart. But the problem is, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, well, you, but was it lordosing <laughs> no no lordosis uh i mean it's just twerk they're just twerking um <laughs> okay that's, that's not sex guy. that's twerking that's different um <laughs> <laughs> but i think where we where we've come with all these crazy ideas are is a natural consequence of scientific exploration like i think this is a pit stop it's it's a barrier that we have to overcome uh to get to consilience. We have to throw out inconsilient ideas, potentially like what you're talking about. Um, but if you look at what these, what these groups do, they take an idea and then they build within and they, they fail to look out. So one thing I'm thinking about is like this intersectionality idea. So if you look at, I, I was interested in intersectionality for a while because I'm like, okay, hierarchy, like I can under, my brain can work through this. Like not everything is equal. But then they do something stupid, like put fucking blackness at the bottom of the hierarchy. Like that's the base of everything. And I'm right. like, I mean, okay, if you look at it, like if you tilt your head and cross your eyes, like maybe, yeah, okay. But this is the problem with postmodernism is tilting your head and crossing your eyes should be exactly as uh, qualified to explain the, the universe as looking out at it with two working 2020 eyes. <laughs> Right. So, so, so pick up an object. Let's use my little electro stimulator here. Let's, let's not let's, talk about this. Let's this just is, use my electro Electrotherapy. So, so, you know, okay. So look at it like this. What is it? I look at it like this. What is it? What? Wait, right. wait, and look over there. This is, this is basic object rotation. Apply that to concepts and you'll find, no. that, you know, you can't explain the elephant by touching the trunk or something of that sort. No. This That's is, what's happening. This We're is why postmodernism is so dangerous because it's like a black hole. It, it it's basically says like, no, my, my view, <laughs> my view from this angle <laughs> is equally as correct as your view from the rotational aspect. Like, why should right. I have to rotate it? Like I shouldn't have to, it, my view, my view is is just as valid and it has no predictability. Um, but I agree. I think, I think the, the thing that we have to do is probably just stand strong and weather the storm because all these people will be in the fucking metaverse eventually anyways. Right. Uh, yes. And it'll be nice if they're all, you know, cloistered, uh, uh then, with then their views can, they can have a postmodern well, fucking field day in there. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone will do exactly as you're supposed to. Uh, you can have lots of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, white saviorist supplicants uh, washing your feet with their tears, uh, a la Christ. Uh, you can be and... a fucking avocado if you want to in there. Really? Right, yeah, I'm you can be it. anything you want. I need, to join. I need to get in the metaverse. I need to become an avocado. So chapter 10 um, is all about the arts. And... The thing that, that occurred to me is the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from chapter 10 is he talks about um, the difference between art and science and how basically art was never really formed from science. It was formed from the physical world, the natural world. And we took our interpretations, our visions of what we saw and what we experienced and cre created a reproduction of them. Memes, okay. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and now... Uh, artists are terrified, or the art community, let's say, the arts, the humanities, are terrified 
that the sciences are going to come in like conquistadors, he says, and boil down all the ink and gold. And he claims we're not here to do that. And uh, I call bullshit. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I want to hear, I want to hear this because I'm not, I, I, I can't say much about what I think at the moment scientists are trying to do, but I would say, even if they do, um, it doesn't eliminate, um, it, it, it does not eliminate the aesthetics that come along with uh, your uh, interface with art or your expressive, uh, your expressiveness in an artistic realm. So uh, you can explain it to me uh, in as thorough and minute, you know, plank length uh, kind of detail uh, as you like. But in the end, I'm still going to see uh, the beauty in Van Gogh and Monet. Uh, I'm still going to listen to my favorite song uh, or my favorite composer. And no matter how much I know about, let's say, uh, you know, music theory and so forth, and what happens in that little, uh, uh, I forget what the name of the effect is, but sometimes I will hear the beauty of a voice. And it's usually a female voice. I don't know why, but it'll bring tears to my eyes just because it's so beautiful. I, I can cry. It, it, it's it's so moving. Bag. Science is not going to change that for me. Um, and it may even catch it. And I would think that. Oh, I, I missed. It. So what did you say? <laughs> Nothing. Um, uh, stop it. You'll hear it. You'll hear it in the playback. <laughs> okay, great. Um, but but anyway, the, the point is, the more I understand, the the more I think it's possible to appreciate those things in an artistic sense. And so I think that understanding can augment the artistic experience and the artistic expression. Uh, I don't think it's there to, I don't think it'll ultimately squash it at all, no matter the intent. I think that's my point. I disagree. I think uh, there are levels of squashing and depending upon, okay. <laughs> depending upon the starting material, for example, you might okay. be a rock, unsquashable, and I might be a potato, right? So genetically speaking- You know, I've heard that said about us in the book club. <laughs> I feel squashable. Um, so- Okay, so you, how? Well, because it's like, for me, when I see the magic behind the curtain, I'm much more interested in behind the curtain, and I will never look at what's in front of me the same it's like this propensity for uh deconstruction okay you know it's like um did you see the movie pig i did that was really good it's a really good movie so yeah. he's talking about um you know he's at that restaurant with his protege or whatever and he's like well it's a deconstructed blah, 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 blah. and 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 um the fuck is that guy's name nick cage is like uh okay it's de like he was like not impressed by his deconstruction so he like you would be kind of unsquashable where he's like um i see food it's like it's food it's beautiful it's wonderful it's great whereas the other guy got really caught up in the minutia where he was <laughs> like no it's this it's this and he completely missed the point right um in just trying to do whatever he was trying to do which was actually having ambition so he was trying to deconstruct this thing to understand it and to exploit it and all these things. So I think there will be aspects of exploitation and uh, virtual squashing of beauty when we deconstruct it. But, but I think they can try, let's say. So, and I've seen, it's funny because having, having seen the movie, I'd seen uh, 
memes like that in the past where it was like, uh, hey, why don't you have this deconstructed Greek salad or why aren't you enjoying it? It turns out here's a piece of feta cheese and here's this and so forth. <laughs> um, ultimately, the deconstruction, um, well, very sometimes a deconstruction can lead to something uh, also profoundly beautiful. Agreed. Uh, but I, the I think problem is, very, well, the very problem often is it leads to nothing. But when you reduce it, so it, so he was talking about reductionism. He's like, oh, don't fear reductionism. Like we can't reduce it all the way. And I'm like, yes, you can. You can boil something down back to its basic components. You could take a Renoir and boil it down to the brush and the canvas and the paints. And then what do you have, right? It, it, it becomes much less beautiful or the, the opportunity for beauty is diminished by deconstruction and reduction. And so maybe on the way down, there's different levels and different angles you can take. But to me, it all leads to heat death. Hmm. So you and I just have the complete opposite uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, you're saying I'm going to stand strong in the, in the midst of entropy and actually still see beauty. And I'm like, no, you fucking aren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you aren't, and this is where this is where relativism, I think, comes into play. Because at the individual level, you and I are different enough that we're not uh, able to be uh, reduced to uh, a prediction. And so, uh, so, so for me, uh, knowing more about something just makes me appreciate how they got there uh, more. Uh, the 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 ideas that led to a certain kind of composition or something are things that maybe I can only imagine. And the fact that I know the technique uh, behind it uh, or how many different shades of blue were used or how many different layers on the canvas uh, don't diminish the beauty, they enhance it. I remember going to see a Da Vinci uh, exposition. Um, it's been within the past few years, uh, pre, you know, pre-COVID of course, like everything uh, that's kind of like that. Um, although I went to a Van Gogh one recently, it was really good. Um, so they did a, uh, they did a, I forget the kind of analysis, um, uh, shoot, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, uh, but they were able to just strip away very minute layers of the painting, scanning it over and over and over again. And it turns out that underneath a painting that is renowned was another one that could also have been. And so you see that he picked something up and started again. And you can imagine what the life of that person was like. And you know, to me, that just says that that's incredible. How many times did he do this? Uh, did he go over this with different strokes and different ideas? And then ultimately, despite all those things, also still mixed into the final product, come up with this final product that is, you know, glorified, uh, like at the pinnacle of, of human artistic achievement. Um, that inspires me with awe and, and, and a sense of wonder that, you know, I never would have had if I didn't know about all those other layers and what was going on underneath the surface. And, and so I agree. I can agree with you on this. But what you're talking about is the process of reduction. You're not talking about the product of reduction. So if we reduce things all the way, all the way. Yeah, well, if you reduce things all the way, you're looking at quarks. So how interesting is right. that? But then you're not going to look at quarks and call it art. Right. So I would say so that I think, there's a threshold for what is considered yes. art. And at that threshold, art is still art and it's augmented by knowing what lies beneath it. That's my I point. think the potential, I think the potential for beauty re like decreases as you reduce a phenomenon. I think there's maybe, let's call it a U-shaped curve. Maybe it doesn't decrease one-to-one, -one, but I would say it could be more beautiful, like what you're talking about, stripping away the layers 
uh, more beautiful, more complex, more interesting. And then at some point you keep stripping and stripping and stripping and stripping, you have nothing left. So it has to eventually come down the other way. So if I looked at, you know, for instance, um, you know, the first stroke on a blank canvas, if, if, if that was the deconstruction, let, let's say, I mean, maybe that's the limit of what you would consider a deconstruction of something that's going to start with a canvas anyway. Mm -hmm. um, that first stroke is uninteresting. But I'm not going to focus on speaking. that and say, well, that's that's art. It doesn't become art until you get a lot of synthesis of things. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you that there are layers of sketch underneath the painting that themselves are equally worthy of artistic, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, appreciation. So if you look at uh, sketches, you know, some of the sketches of the horses or the Vitruvian man, um, and, and just things that he did with faces and hands before ever painting anything, those things were, were magnificent in their own right. And, and so to some degree, uh, some of the reductions will be just every bit as good as the finished product. No, yeah, that, that, that aligns with what I'm saying. And he talks about that too in chapter 10, where he talks about how um, art, uh, artists are basically afraid of this um, and, and they want, because they want to believe that like, oh, it's just a work of art. They don't want to reduce it down to, well, this person has a lot of skill. This person has a lot of knowledge. This person has a grasp on, on detail and an eye for beauty. They don't want to break down the rubric and say, mm -hmm. um, you know, anything about the quality of something, uh, because they're in this postmodern world. Whereas scientists look at it from that perspective, like you and I are capturing things. Like he talks about this Mondrian, um, where is it? There's this Mondrian painting of trees, a row of trees with a shady house. And he's like, he had no idea that he was pulling on some of the defining characteristics that humans crave for where they wanna live. They wanna see a house, they wanna see a forest, a plain, and a body of water. He had no idea that he was pulling on that. He had no idea that the shape of the trees and the spacing in between was going to correspond to this pattern of arousal that we see on EEGs. Um, but somehow this work of art emerged and it has um, had resilience and it has lasted because it pulled on all these principles, which now by science we know to be patterns of arousal. So in this respect, as a scientist, obviously, I find that beautiful. I find that intriguing, amazing. But these are all just layers on the path to reduction. And so you take a work of art and you know nothing about it. You just know that it fucking strikes you. And there's this intuitive quality. And then you start peeling back the layers. And while I find interest in those layers, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, I know too much. It's, it's spoiled it. It's, I, I, I find you can spoil something like that. Like um, when I cook all day, um, you know, I've been so involved in everything. It's like, I don't even want to eat. But when I go to a restaurant and I taste something and I'm like, ooh, what's in that? I'm trying to synthesize in my mind. I'm trying to rebuild what I know from that starting material. And you know, guess that the, the mystery, and this is something he talks about too, is like romanticism. The mystery is what humans want. They want to vibrate. He talks about um, Edmund Wilson 
a literary critic because he talks about literature in this as well. So he talks about Edmund Wilson, a literary critic, saying that humans are going to always, or currently, literature is going to be uh, obliged to vibrate between romanticism and neoclassicism. And he talks about how we, it, during certain periods, we've cared about the context of the author. And in other periods, like now with um, postmodern philosophers, they want to take everything out of its context and just look at the ideas for what they are. Um, well, and recontextualize them to place them in the current the context. Exactly. So, which, which means uh, things lose their historicity. And, mm -hmm. and because of that, the interpretation is always wrong. Wrong. <laughs> well, well, and by wrong, I mean, well, number one, fucking wrong. But, but number two. <laughs> you mean incorrect. It's wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. Wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> wrong. That shit stank. So, <laughs> it, it, well, it, it's, it's incorrect. Because it's in the, in, in the incorrect time. It doesn't capture the spirit of the age. It doesn't capture the spirit of the person. Uh, it's just an idea. And this goes back to the idea of, uh, you know, hermeneutics. It's just you're interpreting a text via a text. But you're missing, let's see, how much of uh, the context that actually produced this work and what it actually means, your interpretation is invalid because it doesn't come at it with the tools appropriate for the time. It doesn't see it as a piece that has evolved and it doesn't even begin to understand how it was that that thing that existed, no matter how abhorrent you might find it in the current context uh, or, or crazy or whatever you want to call it, um, was a necessary step to getting where you are now. You can only you can only critique it in that way because it existed in that time. And at that time, maybe it was revolutionary. And maybe the person who did that did so uh, in a social and political climate, let's say, uh, that they would have lost their lives for it. And you have no idea what that sacrifice meant to the person who did that. And it just it's 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 appalling how removed it is from consequence we are. And maybe that's even part of the reason that we say the most outlandishly silly things and reduce everything to, uh, to uh, it's, it's Hitler or your Hitler or something like that uh, in, in five interactions uh, uh, on the internet uh, because there's no actual consequence. The, did you see the movie Don't Look Up? I haven't. And you're the third person, I think, who said something about it. So... So at first I was really excited. Um, when I saw the previews, I was really excited because Adam McKay did Talladega Nights um, and Step Brothers, I think, as well. Uh, some other Will Ferrell movie that I love, you know, me, stoner comedy. Um, but when I saw he was doing this, I was like, fuck yeah, I loved it. Like I, I was so about it. And then about uh, like three quarters of the way through, it took this very like weird turn because the whole premise of it is, is that there's an asteroid coming to earth and um, nobody believes these two scientists. They're like, it's going to fucking kill us all. And they're like, nah, it'll be fine. They tell the president, they're like, Psh, let's just wait and see. And um, all this shit happens. And in the meanwhile, everybody's going about all their business. And um, it, they did a really great job recreating kind of like what's happening now with um, the world and how everyone's just like, look at this. Like I made the TikTok today. And it was kind of inspired by that um, because that news story broke about the glacier We've passed the point of no return. I can't believe you forced me to make that comment. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, I don't force. 
that just was natural. That came from you. Um, <laughs> but this, uh, this, this movie, I had beef with it because they're implying that climate change is this sixth level extinction event. Hmm. E.O. Wilson also claimed this. Um, and I think there is a huge potential for that, not through any real natural disaster necessarily, but through the chaos that all of these climate related problems will cause. All of the economic chaos and the physical chaos, um, you know, I agree, but, but the problem is with the, um, with the, with the movie, they had something they could do about it. They were like, okay, we can fire uh, this fucking dart. Isn't that what Elon Musk's thing is called? Dart. Um, we can fire that against it and it'll blow up. And then they were like, no, stop. A billionaire wants to come in and mine it. So we're going to let him mine it. And then he, that failed and they all died in the end. But, but we don't have a solution like that for climate change necessarily. Like the equivalent solution would cause a ton of chaos anyways. And how would you force, it would require such a huge level of cooperation, a global level of cooperation. It's not as simple as just deploying a fucking rocket. Well, I, I think what we're seeing is something like we're really good at cooperating to adopt things that are comfortable, but we're not really good at long-term planning that includes privation. And so mm -hmm. uh, anything that's going to require us to make alterations that are not uh, something like the kinds of, you know, near exponential progress in comfort and therefore laziness and conservation of energy that almost any species would, uh, would love to indulge in uh, the way that we do um, is, is, beyond what we're capable of doing collectively. And I think we can intellectually plan it, but to get people to come together the world over to actually behave in those ways is going to be something like almost impossible, perhaps even, dare I say, without something like uh, mandates in behaviors and changes that uh, uh, are enforced at all levels of society. I mean, when you think about... Um, what's going on with, uh, let's say, the vaccination program the world over, uh, you know, before, before Omicron started to look like the uh, common cold in lots, of, uh, in lots of ways out of South Africa and so forth, um, when we all thought we were going to uh, likely be exposed to something that was going to kill us like a plague, uh, many of us still won't adhere to things that would make us healthier. And our, our government organizations won't promote things like, hey, here's how you can be healthier just in case you do get infected. Uh, by the way, if you're not going to uh, take plan A, which is uh, you know, our, our silver bullet that, uh, that we, we recommend, uh, here are the four other things that you could do to your life to keep yourself as healthy as possible if you do happen to get infected. No, they want to use scare There's, tactics and say that yeah. children are dying. They say in the same breath, oh, children hospitalizations are, are up 70%. And also, don't worry so much about this one. And five days is enough to quarantine. Right, like, right, right. So, so, so look at this, the, at the, the, uh, the smartest people studying these things, advising the most sophisticated governmental agencies we have ever had in the history of humanity, have colossally failed to get us to do something to potentially save ourselves and our loved ones. And it has done nothing but create uh, this kind of atomization and uh, the, the reemergence of or, or the reinforcement of pre-existing tribal warfare, at least in the states. 
Right. Um, then you're going to get a planet of nine, you know, we'll probably get close to 9 billion, uh, what, by 2050, I think. I, I forget what the projections are. Oh, but you're going to ask that many people with all these diverse governments, most of whom are trying to be more and more like us, uh, <laughs> to somehow cooperate and will and willfully deprive themselves of things that they think are their inalienable rights, even though they're just luxuries. Um, I don't think we have it in us to, to make those changes. And that I'm not normally pessimistic. I'm very meliorist. Uh, but I don't think we have the collective capacity to think that far ahead. Most of us can barely plan a week out in advance. Well, so. I don't know if we need to think that far ahead. I think I, I still stand by the idea that this whole pandemic situation uh, was a test run. Because um, it's funny, I read uh, Precipice by Toby Ord really dry but a great book it's hard to get people excited about existential risk <laughs> <laughs> um, it is yeah and and toby Ord, you know he did his thing but i still feel like um it, it's really hard to get people to care about future generations and you know like when i talked to this sjw type who was supposedly a buddhist or whatever you know, supposedly she, I guess she was doing the right thing because Buddhism, you know, no attachment. But I was like, you know, the thing I care about the most is um, understanding and eventuality of, of kind of like understanding our species and the world around us. So I care about the existence of our species and the perpetuation of humanity. She's like, I don't. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, uh, you know, Buddhism is leading her to become a nihilist or an anti-natalist. Really? She's a weird one, um, real weird one. Um, but that, uh, I knew her out in Oregon. But, you know, existential risk is like, I mean, that's pretty much what I'm thinking this movie was kind of about. Not, everyone's like, oh, it was about climate change. And I'm like, yes and no. Like there, there are parallels. There are many more catastrophic events that could occur. Um, and, and climate change is not just one event. It's a cataclysm of things. But we, you know, a pan, another pandemic, uh, a pandemic with a, you know, increased morbidity rate, it could wipe out a lot of us. Um, not only that, but one of the things Toby Ord lists in Precipice as an existential risk or an existential threat is authoritarianism. So we've got, you know, a dozen in one hand, twelve in the other. Like, if we put mandates out, you know, how much risk are we putting out there? Versus if we just let people fucking fly free in the pandemic. So I guess this is where a hierarchical kind of um, calculations are required. But but the, the movie I thought was good. The thing I liked the most, spoiler alert about it, um, was the ending. And, and this kind of gets back full circle to what I was talking about, about art and deconstruction and knowing. So at the end, they know the meteor is coming and they kind of try to reconcile as much as they can within their little cohort that they formed in their little tribe. And they're sitting at dinner and the table's shaking and they're still talking about, you know, just everyday things like, you know, mashed potatoes or whatever, mm -hmm. apple pie. And um, I feel like that is what you have the ability to do, which is to kind of like, what you're saying is like still see above all the ones and zeros. Whereas I don't think I would be as cool at that dinner table. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Like, this is all we got. Let's enjoy this absolute moment. But um, yeah, 
So I don't know. I recommend I mean, them. I, I, I if, recommend if, it was, if it were all going to end, you might as well take as much joy as you possibly can, <laughs> knowing full well that finality is moments away. Just yeah. What do you get? Can't stop it. No scream is stopping anything. So yeah. just live. No, I liked it though. Um, in comparison to that old movie by M Night Shyamalan, uh, where I thought they were all going to die and then they didn't. Um, I appreciated. Uh, it, it was a stupid fucking M Night Shyamalan movie that I watched recently about a time warping beach where people age exponentially. Oh, okay. So you want to know something? I enjoyed that quite a bit until the end, because the end was an anticlimax. Yeah. And I felt like you know you're gonna do a Twilight Zone ish uh, horror movie. Uh, and you're going to make all these really profound statements about the things you should have done. And, and you watch these people uh, age and, and, and yearn and regrets. And uh, that one couple that was like kind yeah. of connecting and fighting, that, that was And really, then they commercial really, cop out with letting them survive. Horrible, anticlimactic. I'm so uh, glad you agree. Yeah, it, I was, I was tr like, was this is a fucking boner crashed. killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So let them uh, die. <laughs> and so, so there was another idea that I wanted to. Oh, but that's well. That's 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 the conclusion. I'll say one thing. That's the conclusion to the kind of um, thing he says in this chapter. Is the the thing about art that makes it beautiful is its humanness. Like when we find something, it's an adherence to human nature. And that's why you and I both found it repulsive because we don't want this hyper-realistic version of the world. We want the true human nature of it. That right. if you die, it was all beautiful and, and you get to live. So what? Why? For what? So you can have this struggle with this fucking stupid company. It was disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, was, it, it was not it beautiful. Was and, and interestingly enough, so, and there was the other one that I recommended to you that was uh, Nine Days, where mm -hmm. in some Loved ways, it. You know, there's some, there's some related thematic stuff going on there, because you've, you've got, not, basically, your, your, your life is compressed to that really short time frame, mm -hmm. but the way, even the way that it ended was appropriate. It yes. really followed through and delivered on the promises of the story, so, uh, you know, Anybody listening should certainly watch that. Yeah, we, we need to put all these in the show notes. But um, that was, yeah, I agree that 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 was beautiful, and um, and I think um, and that's pretty much like the that's a great conclusion to what we're talking about. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 uh.